0: Hey there, it's Kathy. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to History of the 90s early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. In the summer of 1987, four young DJs from London took a trip to the Mediterranean island of Ibiza for a birthday celebration. On their first night, they heard about a club called Amnesia and a new party drug called Ecstasy. The guys decided to check it out making their way to Amnesia, which was a converted farmhouse miles away from where they were staying. The club opened at 3 a.m. after the other clubs shut down, and the party usually lasted until midday. It was surrounded by large whitewashed walls and an open-air dance floor with a large mirrored pyramid in the middle. The guys tried ecstasy, then joined several thousand euphoric people who danced in the warm Mediterranean air under the stars. By the time they returned home to London, the experience had changed their lives. And the four DJs would go on to pioneer a massive youth culture movement that spread from the UK through Europe and around North America. I'm Kathy Gonzora, and this is History of the 90s, a podcast about a decade that changed the world. On this episode, the rise and fall of 90s rave culture. A few months after UK DJ Danny Rampling returned from that magical trip to Ibiza, he hosted one of the first raves in London. December 5th, 1987, marked the beginning of something that became known as the Acid House Revolution. Rampling, along with his friends Paul Oakenfold, Johnny Walker, and Nikki Holloway, were swept away by the ecstasy-fueled party at Amnesia and the music played by the club's legendary DJ, Alfredo. And now they were going to bring it to London. Alfredo spun a mix of techno and house music, which was different from the hip hop and rare groove that dominated the London club scene at the time. Rampling's first rave, which he called Shoom, was held in the basement of a fitness centre in South London. The gym equipment was pushed to one side of the room and then covered up with a fluorescent Dayglow banner featuring the now iconic yellow smiley faces. Associated with acid house music and rave culture. But fun fact Rampling has said the smiley logo was actually adopted from the Watchmen comic book series. Rampling set up his DJ console in front of the banner, and for the next six hours, a few hundred young people danced to the sounds Rampling was introduced to in Ibiza. House music was new to Rampling and London partygoers, but it had been around for a while. Born in Chicago in the early 80s with DJs like Jesse Saunders, who started using the Roland 808 drum machine and 303 bass synthesizer on disco sampling hits like the 1984 mega mix On and On. Here, have a listen. Just dance until
1: the beat is gone. Just say you must go on and on, on and
2: on.
0: That recording inspired other Chicago DJs like Frankie Knuckles to use the now iconic sounds of the 808 and 303 synth to arrange their own DIY dance tracks, birthing a new underground sound called house music. It's believed it was called house music because Frankie Knuckles was a DJ at the legendary club The Warehouse, a former factory where young predominantly black gay men came to dance in what was still a heavily segregated club scene. If you're unfamiliar with it, acid house is a subgenre of house music, and it's characterized by the alien sounds of the 303 synth on tracks like this one Future's Acid Tracks. assumed acid house was referring to LSD, but it wasn't. It got the name because of the seething, burbling acid sound produced by the 303-base synthesizer. However, that doesn't mean drugs were not a big part of this scene. Schum was where many new ravers in London tried ecstasy or MDMA for the first time. The euphoric, psychotropic drug was created by German scientists in 1912 and experimented with by the CIA in the 1950s during the Cold War. I'll talk more about ecstasy in just a little bit. Rampling calls that first event in a crammed gym basement a complete breath of fresh air. He told The Guardian that it was small and intimate and attracted a group of like-minded people of all races, colors, and sexual preferences, a mixture of art students, street kids, and fashion people. He said the basement only held 300 people, but within a few months, there were thousands waiting to get in. And over the next few years, Shum would relocate to bigger venues a couple of times before shutting down in 1990. Shum had such a profound effect on its regulars that many of them soon either lost their jobs or created new ones so they could fully embrace their new life as a raver. Rampling's wife, Jenny, who ran Shum with him, had to print an open letter in a rave fanzine asking people not to give up their jobs because so many of them were. The whole scene exploded within a matter of three or four months. Across Britain, similar raves were being held at warehouses, factories, fields and clubs like Fantasia, Universe, Amnesia House and ESP. Some were legal, others weren't, and to keep them secret, locations were often broadcast on pirate radio stations. What followed in Britain is referred to as the second Summer of Love, but it was actually two summers. In 1988 and 1989, more than two decades after the original Summer of Love in 1967, acid house music and ecstasy fueled an explosion of youth counterculture that featured massive raves in fields and warehouses around the country. The movement emulated the free spirit and hedonism of the 60s and was the apex of the rave culture in the UK. Almost every weekend, there would be up to 40 raves in southeast England. Many of them were outdoors, attracting convoys of cars that carried thousands of people. But as reports of wild drug use and general debauchery made the news, raves unleashed a national moral panic. Hello and welcome. Tonight, we look at the growing concern over acid house parties, which attract thousands of young people in the region. Police and politicians say they want them banned in the interests of public safety. The bad press, along with a number of reportedly drug-related accidents and increasing police enforcement, caused raves to go completely underground at the beginning of the 90s. Then in 1992, a massive party on Castle Morton Common in the Malvern Hills of Worcestershire changed everything. A group of New Age travellers, previously known for their visits to Stonehenge at Summer Solstice, organised a week-long free festival in the countryside. The Avon Free Festival was traditionally a small, informal annual gathering of hippies in caravans. But on this particular year, the event attracted thousands of ravers word spread through an answering machine message that said, listen up revellers, it's happening now and for the rest of the weekend. So get yourself out of the house and onto Castle Morton Common. Be there all weekend hardcore. By Monday morning more than 20,000 travellers had turned up. A large marquee had been erected and the camp became a giant rave party. Loud music echoed across the site so loud it could be heard 10 miles away. And still more travellers arrived. From the air, the sheer scale of the invasion of the Common can be seen, achieving the dubious record of being Britain's largest ever illegal rave party. And three days on, it was showing no signs of coming to an end. The rave at Castle Morton Common was one of the driving forces behind a crackdown by the UK government in 1993. Parliament introduced the Criminal Justice and Public Order Act, which included a section specifically on raves. The law banned open air gatherings of 100 or more people who played amplified music described as having a succession of repetitive beats. The law was revised a few years later to drop the number of partiers allowed from 100 people to 20 people, and that remains in place to this day. But even before the crackdown on raves in the UK, a number of DJs decided it was time to leave Britain and bring the rave culture to North America. As it happens, the phenomenon was already spreading around the United States and Canada. It's hard to tell this story in a straight line. The rise of rave culture happened simultaneously in a few locations around North America. Let's start in New York. In 1989, a popular Brooklyn DJ named Frankie Bones went to England and played a party called Energy, going on at 6 a.m. in front of 25,000 people. Inspired, Bones decided to start throwing similar parties in the U.S. Parties that he dubbed Storm Raves, which took place in Brooklyn warehouses. And Frankie Bones was also allegedly the man behind the PLEUR philosophy, which remains popular at today's EDM festivals. PLEUR stands for Peace, Love, Unity, and Respect. And it seems to have first appeared during a fight at a Storm Rave in Brooklyn. Bones famously yelled on the microphone, if you don't start showing some peace, love, and unity, I'll break your faces. He also released a track in June 1993 called Peace, Love, and Unity.
2: This storm is only going the brain drop. They can't rain like a sleep for the break of dawn. So keep moving to the sound Oh, the drum. You can't stop till the rain is done. Rush, spray out the sound system. Pump up the bass and make the people listen to something. They never heard before. The crowd won't leave when the clock is 9 a.m. The competition spies on party because we watch it so rise. It's like a volcano eruption, yo. It's a boat with ducks a ravenous. Throw your hands in the air. that your head against a wall like you just
0: do Around the same time, the legendary party producer DJ Scotto organized his first New York rave, at the Ritz on West 54th Street, formerly Studio 54. Moby was among the live performers at that event. That same year, 1992, DJ Scotto also started his infamous Friday night parties called NASA at the iconic club Shelter in a rundown part of Tribeca. Actress Chloe Sevigny, a teenager at the time, was a regular at NASA, and she was later featured in a 1995 film about the 90s New York rave culture called Kids. NBC's Today Show ran a segment on the New York rave scene in 1992. Now secrecy is key, with locations kept under wraps until hours before the event. Why is rave kept such a secret? All
1: right, I'll tell you. It's because the point of it is is, it, is that it's not a club. It's It's something that's underground. It's something that you can't find. Part of the excitement is the fact that you guys can't find us.
0: Scotto's NASA Collective, which stands for Nocturnal Audio and Sensory Awakening, went on to produce rave tours that featured Moby, Prodigy, Orbital, Apex Twin, and then-emerging producer Richie Houghton. Another prominent rave promoter in the 90s was Global Underground Network. They organized the Opium and Narnia festivals in Southern California that drew massive crowds. Narnia was featured on MTV and twice in Life magazine and honored as the event of the year in 1995. The event became known as the Woodstock of Generation X. There were other big events as well. A New Year's Eve rave in 1992 at the California Amusement Park Knott's Berry Farm attracted over 17,000 people, which at the time set a record as the biggest legal rave in North America. The event was organized by Rave America and had six outdoor stages and dance floors among the rides and water slides. The amusement park was overrun by backpack-toting, e-dropping kids, with several thousand more without tickets gathered outside the event hoping to get in. It's been said that event at Knott's Berry Farm put an exclamation point on the arrival of rave culture in the early 90s. Again, some of the parties were legal, while others were illegal. They were secret. So how did word spread? Well, in the early days, it took quite a bit of creativity and legwork. This was still the pre-internet era, so initially, everything was very phone-based. To keep things secret, ravers called a phone line to get directions to a general area where the rave was being held. Exact addresses were usually not given out to try to prevent police from finding the location. It was the same in most big cities where raves were taking place, including Toronto, Scott Fraser, who was a club owner, manager, and entrepreneur in the city's entertainment scene in the 80s and 90s, says they made a big effort to keep things on the down low.
2: We did all the things that we heard people did over in the UK, which was you went to this hot dog stand and he gave you an address and you went to this donut shop and they gave you an address and you went to six or seven places before you found out where the real party was, which was usually around the corner from the hot dog cart. The point was, is this was supposed to stop the police from finding us. Not that the police couldn't go to the hot dog cart and the donut shop. It it was just all just this this game.
0: Let's take a journey back to 2003. Canadian teen sensation Avril Lavigne was topping the charts and turning the music industry upside down. But... What if I told you that the Avril Levine we know and love might not be the same
2: Avril? What? Did Avril die? Was she replaced by
0: a doppelganger? I'm Joanne McNally, and I'm doing a deep dive into a notorious internet conspiracy. Who replaced Avril Levine? Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Toronto had one of the biggest rave scenes in North America, with parties featuring house music and ecstasy as early as 1991. The first were organized by a UK outfit called Exodus Productions at 23 Hawk, a club that occupied a dark, raw warehouse space with no signage on Richmond Street. Around the same time, DJ Alex arrived in Toronto from London and began hosting chemistry events at a warehouse on River Street, just around the corner from 23 Hawk.
2: It was mind boggling to me. And you go into this building and it looks like this decrepit, condemned, shut down warehouse. And all of a sudden there's a sound system and there's lasers and and video. It It was insane.
0: What started as a small underground scene of warehouse parties in the downtown core soon blew up.
2: You know, Toronto was one
1: of the earliest. I mean, in, in the whole North American scene, Toronto was renowned as as being, you know, one of the epicenters in North America. That's
0: Scott Turner. He and the other Scott you heard from earlier are close friends who were both heavily involved in the rave scene in the 90s. Scott Turner worked in radio and during the 90s was program director of dance music station Energy 108. And full disclosure, he was my boss for a couple of years while I worked at the station as a newscaster. Turner says there were lots of clubs playing house music or rave music during this time, but that's not the same thing as a rave.
1: You know, a rave uh, really to me would be something in a, a, a secret location, not already a club that has a sound system that's built in. It's a, a warehouse or outside where you have to you get the hire the equipment, you have to bring in the lights you've got to bring in security. Uh, That to me is a proper rave.
0: People attending these proper raves came armed with a few necessary accessories.
1: You know, whistles was a big part of it, and everybody would be blowing the whistles, you know, during the music, when they're dancing. The glow sticks was a huge part of the rave scene, a lot of glow sticks, Uh, baggy pants. Everybody had these just enormous baggy pants, and the soothers was a very funny thing we realized soon that it was part of ecstasy because what would happen on ecstasy, especially if you had a fair bit, um, you would start to grind your teeth And you know what it was? Like, some people were a little more prone to it. that had more of the the jaw and the the teeth grinding than others. So I think wearing or having the soother in your mouth really helped that.
0: (laughs) Rave accessories and fashion evolved over time. But there are a couple of essential outfits, according to IEDM, an online rave wear company. In the 80s and early 90s, a rave outfit consisted of a smiley face T-shirt along with oversized pants with a lot of pockets, Whistle on a necklace, colorful bucket hat, and sneakers. By the mid to late 90s, the outfits evolved to include hair spiked with colored gel, a visor, glow stick, Mickey Mouse keychain plush, furry backpack, and shell-toe Adidas. And by that time, the rave scene in North America was undergoing a big shift. The parties were getting bigger, and the age of the audience was getting younger. What once attracted crowds in their early 20s was now attracting 15 and 16-year-olds. Word of raves was now spreading openly on the internet. And the music was being heavily marketed by record labels. Artists like Prodigy, the Chemical Brothers, Fatboy Slim, and Moby took the industry by storm. As raves continued growing in popularity, word got out to the adults in society that young people were rebelling in a new and dangerous way. In 1997, 2020 ran a segment warning parents about the threats. They call it a rave, and it's the latest kid craze. Millions of youngsters as young as age 10 flock to secret locations to party and dance through the night. That's all night long, often till 8 or 9 in the morning. The segment warned that not only were kids staying out all hours and missing school because of it, they were also taking drugs, ecstasy, LSD, and ketamine. And they were engaging in risky and dangerous behavior. It suggested that up to 70% of kids who attended raves were on drugs. Scott Fraser says parents had a right to be worried.
2: Like it was 100% legitimate. It was, it was... It was a train that was running so fast out of the station that it was very hard to keep up. It's a, the whole scene was, was drug fueled.
0: So if you're like me and didn't attend a rave in the 90s, you might be wondering why ecstasy was such a big part of the scene. Well, Scott Turner says it has to do with the music.
1: If you were to, to take ecstasy and listen to, oh, I don't know, ACDC or some Rolling Stones... It's, it really brings you down. It just doesn't work. But there, there's something in the frequencies of, um, of house music and techno and trance music that it just neurologically does something. Uh, it, it really takes the music to another level.
0: The use of ecstasy was so ubiquitous at raves that Turner actually wrote a memo to all staff at Energy 108 in 1992 about an upcoming rave. It included some info about ecstasy, which he explained was a major part of the UK rave scene, and to a much smaller degree, a part of the Toronto scene. Turner included a photocopied page from a report on ecstasy, which described the origins of the drug and its effects. For example, one paragraph states that ecstasy causes widening of the pupils, a faster heartbeat, a faint tingling all over, dry mouth. It can cause eye rolling, dancing on the spot, smoking intensely, sweating, pulling weird faces, and jaw grinding. But raves and acid house music aren't the only genre of music associated with a certain type of drug. Other drugs and genres have also historically been linked together. Like jazz and heroin in the 1960s, disco and quaaludes, reggae and weed, punk and speed, rap and cocaine. The list goes on and on. And part of the reason for that is drugs tend to make music sound better. And I'm not just saying that, there is science behind this. Dr. Zach Walsh, an associate professor at the University of British Columbia's Department of Psychology, has done a ton of research on the subject. And he says there's a bunch of reasons why music sounds better when you're high. But a main one has a lot to do with what is referred to as the locus coeruleus, or the novelty detection part of the brain, and how that responds to both music and drugs. Dr. Walsh told Vice some drugs, especially psychedelic drugs, activate and enhance the part of our brain that detects novelty. So when you hear music on drugs, you have the experience of it being entirely new, like you're hearing it for the very first time, which can be kind of mind-blowing. But like with all drugs, there are dangers associated with MDMA, once called ecstasy, now called Molly." The drug raises body temperatures, and combined with continuous dancing on a jam-packed dance floor, the result can be heat stroke and even death, which is why ravers drank tons of water. And even that can lead to something called water intoxication, which can also be deadly. Plus, long-term use of MDMA can lead to serious health issues like weight loss, fatigue, depression, and can mess with your immune system, And there's always the concern that users can be sold other more dangerous drugs like heroin instead of MDMA. In October 1999, a 20 year old university student died at a Toronto rave in an underground garage after taking three times the amount of ecstasy that could kill a person. Alan Ho was among 3,500 young people who attended the event called A View to a Thrill he collapsed on the dance floor in front of a friend. He lay on the concrete, his eyes closed, his jaw and fists clenched. Around him, thousands of young people, unaware, continued to dance to the pulsating beat of techno music in the heat of the soggy underground garage. His friend kept yelling his name, and after a few minutes, a bouncer came over and said, take him outside, he's overdosing. Poe died in hospital about 15 hours later. The death of Alan Ho marked a turning point for Toronto's rave scene. He was the ninth person in Ontario to die after taking ecstasy, including a 20-year-old student named Kieran Kelly, who died at a three-day rave at Sobble Beach, and another 20-year-old man who overdosed at a party at the Warehouse Club in Toronto. According to a doctor with the Toronto Public Health Board, people were overdosing every weekend at raves. Dozens were also getting arrested, charged with drug offenses, including at a popular event held several times a year on the grounds of Exhibition Place, which is a city-owned venue. Concern over raves and ecstasy reached a fever pitch with calls to shut them down. Scott Fraser wasn't that surprised when things started to go wrong.
2: Didn't take a rocket scientist to realize that this was a situation that was prone for something bad to happen eventually. You had people on drugs making decisions about people on drugs. <laughs> the two just, you know, you know, as, as, a, as a thought, looking back at it now, just doesn't make any sense.
0: In response, the City of Toronto placed a two-month moratorium on raves at city-owned venues like Exhibition Place. And a coroner's inquest was called into the death of Alan Ho. At the inquest, a toxicology expert testified that a single ecstasy pill can kill someone with a sensitivity to MDMA. Dr. Margaret Thompson said she believed Ho had such a sensitivity. Jurors at the inquest were asked to consider whether governments should permanently ban raves. But in the end, they said that would just push them further underground and make them more dangerous. So instead, the jury recommended that police and city officials should license raves, which would force organizers to follow safety protocols. The jury also suggested a minimum age of 16 to attend a rave, and it also stressed the need for governments to better educate young people about the risks of ecstasy and other drugs commonly used at the events. Then Toronto Mayor Mel Lastman, along with Toronto Police Chief Julian Fantino, both continued to push for a harsher response. Rather than implementing the recommendations that came out of the Allen Hoe inquest, Mayor Lastman put forward a complete ban on raves on city property, as well as a city-wide ban on all electronic music events after 3 a.m., in response, a loose collective of promoters, harm reduction advocates and activists called the Toronto Dance Safety Committee organized a massive protest party outside City Hall. The event called iDance took place on August 1st, 2000, attracting 20,000 rave supporters. The lineup for the event included international house DJs Derek Carter, Miss Honey Dijon and Bad Boy Bill. They also booked local heroes Kenny Glasgow and Dr. Trance, and suspended a giant disco ball over Nathan Phillips Square. The next day, city councillors rejected the rave ban by a massive margin of 50 to 4. But even though raves came out on top in this battle, the scene was undergoing another massive shift. Toronto raves of the early 90s no longer existed really the edgy underground grassroots gatherings had become big electronic dance music events run by big-time promoters. Those promoters were dealing with increased regulations that cut into profits. Venues were getting harder to find. Plus, rental fees were going up as venue owners were cluing in on how much money some raves were making. And according to a Vice article, the scene had splintered into many different factions, many of whom didn't even want to be associated with the word rave anymore. It was the same across North America. Clubs were moving to smaller premises and weekly events became monthly events. In California, which had always been America's rave stronghold, large-scale parties all but disappeared. By 2004-2005, some North American DJs were moving to Berlin where the work prospects were better. Over the next several years, a rebranding of electronic dance music and the parties associated with them began to take place. What were once called raves became festivals. Techno became EDM. And even the drugs were rebranded. Ecstasy became Molly, which is just ecstasy in powder form as opposed to pills. During the second half of the 2000s, electronic dance music began to surge in popularity again. Daft Punk set at the Coachella Festival in 2006 where they performed inside a huge glowing pyramid is often called a turning point. Another big breakthrough came with the 2010 Electric Daisy Carnival held at the L.A. Memorial Coliseum, which attracted over 200,000 people over two days. And that was followed by a number of other EDM festivals and a commercial surge for DJs like Avicii, Deadmau5 and Skrillex. In the past year, during COVID lockdowns, illegal raves have been taking place again in the U.K., France, Berlin and other European cities. With clubs shut down and festivals cancelled partiers have once again returned to secret warehouse locations and isolated farmers' fields to dance in secret. Thanks for listening to this exploration of 90s rave culture from Ibiza to Toronto. And thanks to my very special guests, the two Scots, Scott Turner and Scott Fraser, their knowledge of the rave scene was greatly appreciated. This topic was actually suggested by a few of our listeners, Ali, Chris and Jarrett. A great idea, guys. Thanks so much for pointing me in this direction. If you have an idea, please let me know. You can reach me through Twitter and Facebook at 1990s History and on Instagram at that 90 Podcast. You can also email me at 90s at curiouscast.ca. History of the 90s is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts, and everywhere else you get your streaming audio. You can also listen at CuriousCast.ca. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the show so you never miss an episode. And while you're there, take a minute to rate and review us. This episode was written and hosted by me, Kathy Kanzora. Our producer is Dila Velasquez. And sound design and final production is by Rob Johnston. See you next time for more History of the 90s.